Cheap people, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Mauricio Magaldi, and this is episode 201 of Blockchain Insider. Jesus, that's a lot of episodes. I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Catherine Gu, head of CBDC and protocols at Visa. How are you doing today, Catherine? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well and excited to talk about identity on the blockchain. We'll dive into the groundbreaking intersection of traditional identity management and blockchains, and so-called identity on the blockchain. We'll discuss what identity on, on blockchain means, how it works, learn about on-chain KYC, the know your customer, important use cases, and its potential impact on anti-money laundering checks and safeguarding users against financial crime. Today, we're welcomed by Alex Pruden, CEO of Aleo. Welcome to the show, Alex. Can you tell our listeners about you and Aleo, please? Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, so I'm Alex, I'm the CEO of Aleo. I've been here for three years. Before that, I was an investor at A16Z. And before that, I had a US Army career where I got into blockchain originally. Um, Aleo is a layer one blockchain building, uh, basically at, at the intersection of privacy and programmability. So if you think about Ethereum as a blockchain that supports smart contracts and Zcash is a blockchain that supports zero knowledge proofs of transactions. Aleo is trying to combine those two things together. And we think that a great potential use case is identity, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. We're also joined by Heather Dahl, CEO of Indicio and Hyperledger Foundation governing board member. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of your work with both of these organizations and your recent news from Aruba this week. Hi, absolutely. It's good to be here. Indicio provides our customers with verifiable credential technology, which allows them to exchange authoritative data with consent and security to partners in their ecosystems. Those partners receive that data without having to have direct integrations or federated systems. And that's because of the blockchain and Hyperledger, Indy, Aries, and a non-cred I sit on the Hyperledger Governing Board. Our team have been champions, leaders, developers, maintainers of these Hyperledger projects. I've been involved with Hyperledger India and Aries since some of the earliest days, and we're extremely proud to be a part of the Hyperledger community. Perfect. Yeah, I've, I've been around Hyperledger for a few years, so yeah, glad to have that conversation too. Okay, so before we dive in, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies they're representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. So let's get started. Uh, let's understand what identity is in the context of blockchain and how it works. I'm going to throw to you, Catherine, to start us off. Identity in the real world looks like, say, a passport or an ID card. The identity on the internet looks like email accounts with passwords and single sign-ons and whatnot. What is the equivalent of that in Web3? You know, that, that conversation can probably be a good starting point for our panelists to, to, to address as well, because I think there can be a lot of things that we leverage from the Web2 and bring into the sort of on-ramping, so to call into Web3. So, you know, your username, your, your actual identity and stuff could hopefully be imported onto the blockchain. But having, you know, given this is the blockchain infrastructure, there could be something more 
either that's your you know your wallet address that represents your identity with something else that could be uh, something different from your real world identity so actually i think with that you might i might just kick it off to alex to uh to share some of your insights into how you see identity on a web3 specifically that's going to look like yeah i think the first thing i would say is that identity is a pretty big concept right there's a lot of different aspects of what identity is and there's a lot of different aspect, you know, those different aspects of identity are more or less important depending on the context, right? So take a commonly used identity document, at least in the United States, a driver's license, right? So a driver's license has information on it about me, about a person, about my identity that's relevant to the question of, you know, can this person legally drive, right? And yes, like, you know, there's obviously some kind of ancillary information like date of birth and, you know, eye color, et cetera. And you know this is it's it's kind of just standardized, which is why it's kind of acceptable for other forms of authentication too, right? Think about going to a bar, you should present your driver's license to prove you're over 21, right? So I think you know it really. I wouldn't necessarily say that identity looks different in Web three, you know, because I think again, identity generally is just that there's a lot of aspect, infinite number of aspects about an individual's identity. What I think Web three allows for, though at least in how I define Web3 in terms of permissionless protocols, you know, is that it, it allows users to potentially own their digital identity in the same way that they physically hold the driver's license, right? This is obviously not how the client-server model of the web works, right? So it's like, in a sense, like my Google account, that is like owned by Google. I can't go and show necessarily that I have a Google account without access to Google server, right? This is how a lot works, in fact. Right. Whereas like, you know, my physical passport, yes, the U.S. government issued it to me, but I physically hold it. Right. It's physically mine. I can show and prove that I am a U.S. citizen by just the ownership of that document. Now, of course, the U.S. government can revoke it, et cetera. But I think what what Web3 gives you is this chance for digital, like the digital ownership aspect of Web3 is what I think is really unique when it comes to identities, because it kind of lets you emulate this kind of the more physical world where there's this physical scarcity of passport documents, namely mine, right? Like there's only one of one passport of mine, theoretically, hopefully. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. that's how I would just say it. That's it's interesting parallel the the physicality of it and the and the the fact that the ownership is limited kind of is a primitive on on Web three that that certainly applies to to identity. Heather, how do you take that on on Indicio? What is what is the construct? Identity on Web3 means last week I crossed the border into Aruba and I didn't need to use my paper passport anymore. Didn't even pull it out of my bag. And I legally crossed the border using blockchain technology, using Hyperledger, Aries, Indian, and non-creds. And that's because today we have this Web3 identity that we're all talking about. It's here today and it's removing the need for paper passports. And so one of the things when we open the show and talking about Aruba, Aruba is announcing that starting next, next spring, they're launching the Aruba Happy One Pass combined with automatic border control gates from CETA that allows a traveler to turn their passport, they, their paper passport at home before they even go to the airport into a verifiable credential which is a Web3 digital identity, using the chip in their passport, and they are able to share their passport directly with the government. It doesn't need to go to a third party. It 
doesn't have to be stored by their airline. It doesn't have to go to another entity's centralized database. Instead, that traveler from their kitchen or their sofa is sending it straight to the government. It removes correlation. It provides the most privacy-preserving technology available now in the world and the security on top of it. And that government is receiving that authoritative data directly from their traveler and making that decision about a border crossing before someone gets on the plane. So when they land in Aruba starting next year, that traveler uses the biometrics that they provided themselves out of their passport directly to the government in an absolutely ethical way because they provided it and consented to it And they're using that biometric to hit a face pod, no paper passport required. And that decision is made so fast, you don't even know what's happened. And I can tell you that because I crossed the border last week on it. And I mean, it was a beautiful, I never thought I'd say this in my life. It was a beautiful arrivals hall experience because I walked up and you know how things usually spin and spin and spin? There was no spinning. It was boom. I was like gone. People had to tell me, oh no, you're, you're proved you're going through. And that is what the government of Aruba, Aruba Tourism, is moving to with CETA. But it's not just Aruba. There are more countries and other geographies around the world that have said Web3 digital identity is at the point of maturity to make paperless passports possible, and we're just doing it, and we're going with it. So what's really interesting is, having been in this space for over a decade now, all these things that we're talking about, what it could do, what we need to do, what we think it is, it's happening and it's going and governments are embracing it. And boom, I never thought I would use blockchain or Web3 to cross the border. And I have multiple times. And that's so awesome. It is awesome. Now, one thing that we might want to kind of break down for the listeners is the difference between decentralized identity, self-sovereign identity, and any other jargon that identity might have when it comes to both Web 2 and and Web 3 identity. So we kind of go from the definition to the amazing use cases you guys have talked about. So Alex, can you help us understand the separation between a self-sovereign identity, a digital identity, or any form of other AIM that, you know, usually we see in the industry? Yeah, sure. So I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of definitions out there. I mean, it's a little hard because there's a lot of products out there. And so everybody kind of takes their own definition of, of what digital or self-sovereign identity is. Uh, I think the W3C has a document out there, but, you know, there's that document's quite uh, voluminous and, and itself internally a little bit inconsistent. But I'll tell you, like, I think digital identity and self-sovereign identity are kind of distinct. I mean, I can have it, I can scan my passport right now and it's a JPEG and I can send that to a government. And I guess that's a digital identity, right? I mean, it's in the form, it's in a digital form, right? You know, I think the, the concept of self-sovereign identity is a little more expansive than that. It kind of is, is generally describing this idea that like, hey, we have this expansive definition of identity that could include, could expand or contract depending on the context. And I want to be able to authenticate, right, for some, you know, to, you know, in some authorization process for some resource or to, you know, access something. 
And I want to be able to only reveal the aspects of my identity that are relevant to the question being asked, right? So it's basically effectively allowing you, it's, it's, it's kind of like similar to this like user control of their own data situation, right? I think, you know, this is not even like, even if you think about the physical world, we don't even really have this. If you think about like a, an example that I like to use a lot is again, the driver's license. Like when I go to a bar, like bar down the street in Montana from me, right? I show my driver's license. The whoever's checking driver's licenses learns a bunch of facts about me that are unrelated to the question at hand. Is this individual over 21, right? Uh, like, so they learn my actual age, right? Which is like, really, if you think about what, what I'm, I'm trying to authenticate into, getting into an establishment where I can drink alcohol, irrelevant how old I actually am as long as I'm older than that age, right? So self-sovereign identity in the digital world describes this, you know, basically construct where you as the user have control over what is done with your data, the, your, the identity data that really defines who you are, right? And I think the very last thing, like maybe let me just, instead of just ending with what it is, why it's important, why it's important is because, you know, in the digital world, especially when we're talking about not Web3, but in the Web2 world, like bits and bytes are infinitely copyable, right? There is absolutely no reason why you can't just take someone's identity information and impersonate them. Right. I mean, I have I was like I said, I was a U.S. Army soldier. I had a top secret clearance. The U.S. government was hacked and, you know, away the hackers came away with, among other things, my fingerprints. Right. Like it's like you can literally, you know, this in a world where we live more and more of our lives online, the ability to hide the information that, you know, about ourselves that's irrelevant to the questions being asked is critical from a security standpoint. Right. And I think. And, and lastly, the, the sovereign piece is important here where like the self-sovereign identity piece means like I and I alone choose what I want to show and with whom. There's no third party that I need to ask permission to do that for. So I think these things are critical primitives when we talk about what we think, you know, the identity of the future should look like that balance both the need for compliance, but also individual individual liberty and consumer protection. Got it. You raised one term that I, I've seen before, I've researched before, but Heather, you, you mentioned that in the context of identity, which was Web3 credentials. Is this also a separate type of identity or is this a standard upon which identities can be construed? It's all the same thing. In fact, I think it's unfortunate that we've almost shorted the power of this technology by calling it identity because people tend to think of identity as merely your passport or driver's licenses. But really, this technology that we try to label is one of various form we call it self-sovereign decentralized bring your own identity identity tech like well you've got all the terms forget that forget it it's it's the credential and it's the technology and what it is able to deliver and you pick the information that you can package in this in this technology what we're really talking about is mutually authenticated peer-to-peer relationships where both parties have agency to pick what information they need in order to make their decision, and they can pick how they want to reveal that information, whether it's zero-knowledge proof, selective disclosure, predicate, it doesn't matter, but we each have a choice. And so on one side, when you talk about a border immigration, they have a criteria and they need those particular pieces of data about you. And in some cases, it's more than just what's in your passport. It's that you have 
a hotel reservation. It's that you have met health requirements. You have met a financial benchmark in order to enter their country. So there are things more than just in your passport. And they need that in order to make the decision to let you cross the border. Now, it's my choice to decide whether I want to provide all that information on the terms that they need it. And if I choose not to, I am also making my own choice with my own agency that I've decided not to cross that border because I don't agree with their criteria. But the fact is, it's a mutual relationship that lets us make the own decision. Up to now, as an individual, I've had to assign that agency to a third party or someone to make that decision on my behalf, and I lose control over it. So what we've done is we've actually brought digital dignity back to the individual, to the organization, um, to the IP or ownership of who the organization and the person has around the data that forms who they are. So before we jump into the break, I want to kind of bring some of the most classic use cases in the context of uh, decentralized identity or identity on the blockchain, which are know your customer type use cases, which is it's the industry standard. If you go to financial services, everything has a know your customer step to it, be it buying, be it selling, be it trading, be it just opening an account. There are steps and 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 the more you you move, the more money you move, the increasing KYC requirements are. And then there's obviously the control over the checks of anti-money laundering, which protect uh, financial institutions and users from uh, accessing or sharing any particular money movement with uh, unwanted agents in the market. How, in your opinion, how does decentralized identity or identity on the blockchain, to capture the topic of the show, how does that improve KYC? Because it's it's my understanding that the amount of penalties that infringing KYC uh, regulation across the industry uh, is is rampant. It's a, it's a large number, but because it's not the need is there, but maybe the tooling is broken or it doesn't work as ideally as as it would. How does identity on the blockchain, decentralized identity, or self sovereign identity could help improve? Uh, KYC to that extent. Does this apply only to, say, crypto people? Does it apply to everybody? Can everyone access that? What is what is your take? I'm going to go first with you, Heather, then we go to Alex and before we jump to the break. Right. What it does is it increases efficiency and it removes friction for KYC. Because when we talk about identity on the blockchain, it actually there's no PII when you use Hyperledger Indy. I just want to make that very clear. Sometimes people think, oh, you're hashing the PII or the identity onto the blockchain. With Hyperledger Indy and Aries and NonCred, you do not need to do that. So for those who are worried about PII on the, on the chain, in, my, in the case I talk about, that is no worry. But when you talk about KYC, whether when it's like a traditional um, legacy systems, of a typical commercial bank. Oftentimes, they're redoing KYC. They're doing KYC when you open an account. They're redoing a lot of that KYC again when you apply for a loan. Then they're doing the KYC again for another product or service. Sometimes they're doing all the same KYC within 30 business days and they redo it. But with a verifiable credential or a Web3-based identity, 
because you have that portability of that reputation and trust. And because it's the same institution, in this case is redoing the KYC over and over, they have trust of their own divisions. And so it means that they can move that verifiable credential and that KYC data to their own divisions, and it's completely trusted. So they're saving money because they're not having to pay to redo it. They're increasing efficiency with speed because it's a quick port, and they're removing the friction of the customer aggravation. And that's um, what banks are doing today with this type of identity. When we move over to the Web3 digital asset world, part of the challenge, as you know, on anti-money laundering is how do we know who the person is attached to that digital asset? And what this does is a verifiable credential allows you to bind that identity that was determined by the issuing organization, whether it's a financial institution, a bank, maybe it's a passport, for instance, it allows you to bind that credential with the data that you need to meet KYC compliance to that digital asset, and you can verify it at the points of transaction that you need to for the purposes of compliance, and you have an immutable ledger for auditing purposes in order to prove that you've done that. And you can all do that. You do that all now, whether you're a traditional financial services, you're Web3 crypto-facing services, you can do all of that. And I'm going to take it one step up. You can bind it to biometrics and bring all of that together to actually strengthen your KYC beyond the position today. Got it. Alex, what's your take on KYC and this blockchain identity or identity on the blockchain? Yeah, so first thing I would say is, look, KYC is in place to help prevent bad things from happening. And I think you just have to acknowledge that it fails 99% of the time, right? If that weren't true, you know, North Korea wouldn't have a nuclear program and drug cartels wouldn't operate in Colombia, Right. Typically, 99% of money laundering, according to statistics, happens through the traditional financial system, right? So I think first off, I think it's just the current system that's in place isn't necessarily working. Secondly, I think it's a bit dangerous, at least to me, to attempt to solve that problem by increasing the surveillance burdens on individual customers. I mean, if you look worldwide around how cash in some places has basically disappeared, you can kind of think of it like this is a fundamental shift in basically an, an individual's rights to be able to go and purchase a coffee down the street and be able to do that with what's in their pocket or be or needing to call us a server, right? Like somewhere that can be shut off. Now, in the United States, will that ever happen? I don't know. History is long, so hopefully not. But like, you know, I, places where I got into crypto in the Middle East, you know, I was working with Syrians and, you know, the government there arbitrarily shut people off based on you know, whether they were on the wrong side of the street in Aleppo, right? The rebel-held side of the non-rebel side. Speaking of identity in Syria, and there's an entire population of Kurdish people in Northeast Syria that doesn't have a passport by conscious choice of the government, right? These people can never leave their country. They can never go anywhere. They can never qualify for any services, right? So I think it's just, it's important to remember that, like, we can try and solve these things in the context of the system that exists, but that has many drawbacks. Now, I think one advantage of a more decentralized, a truly decentralized permissionless system is that we can collectively across borders, across regulatory regimes, you know, across, you know, the world kind of 
uh, you know, come to an agreement around identity information that matters for the purposes of various services and access to, you know, financial services or payments or whatnot. And I think by virtue of zero knowledge cryptography specifically, which is, you know, I touched on in the, my intro, but this is really the core of what Alio is based on, right? Alio is based on this concept of zero knowledge cryptography, which lets you prove a fact is true without revealing why it's true. Now, why is that important in this context? Well, it's because I can actually in advance of a payment depending on whatever smart contract logic I want to write, I can prove that I'm being compliant before I make the payment, right? This is actually better than both cash and sending bank wires because well, I can send a bank wire to Vladimir Putin tomorrow. And like, you know, if it's like, so what, you know, one of his accounts, a lot of times the way it'll work is after the fact, someone will find me and hold me criminally liable, but the money's still there, right? So it's like, it didn't stop the payment. I just get cut, get caught later, right? And this is why money laundering is rampant, right? Because it's whack-a-mole, right? And, and, you know, with cash, of course, cash doesn't have any compliance. You know, you, it's, it's fully self-sovereign, which is great, but, you know, there's no ability to enforce any kind of compliance regime, right? Which is why typically governments hate it. <laughs> and so, you know, I think in this model, with a permissionless decentralized blockchain, you can have the best of both worlds. You can have cash that is smart effectively, right? And, you know, if you have a method of payment or le whatever legal tender is in whatever jurisdiction that you're in, you can define what the logic is that you need to check before spending that dollar bill or before spending that peso or before spending that pound, right? And then the consumer doesn't have to give up any information about themselves and a government can be, can be you know, satisfied that this was correct by construction in terms of compliance before the money was ever sent. It's interesting you you bring some of those aspects in because it seems that with uh, with blockchain we're always running into multi-sided trade-offs or trilemmas <laughs> as part of the solutions. But it's interesting that we 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 at least in the world of blockchain there is a a intent to talk about those trilemmas and genuinely work around and, and try to solve them in ways that are smart self-sovereign and, and permissionless. So Yeah, and let me just say one more thing, because I think this is important to note. I think, because we're talking about digital identity on the show, and I think one thing that everyone just needs to realize in the digital world in general is a much different paradigm. Like if I walk across a border and have a biometric face scan, I have basically lost control of my digital identity because whatever government is holding that data on whatever server now has my biometric information and can copy it and send it wherever. This is very different than how the world used to be right? When like someone could just look at you and say, if you were you, right? And this is why I think privacy preserving technology is critical in all of these digital systems, because without that, effectively, you lose control of who you are and what you're capable of. That is a good segue for when we come back from the break. So we're just going to take a quick pause here and be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa's helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Welcome back. So now that we understand uh, what the identity on the blockchain means and what are the use cases, how it applies to know your customer, we kind of started uh, leaning into what the future lies and what it brings for us in terms of a whole new generation of applications. You 
ended the previous segment on on privacy preserving. I'm going to hand it over to Catherine so we can start and see if this is actually the path forward and, and what it means for us as we build more of this onto the blockchain. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Mo. Because I think, you know, I, I want to focus the attention more to the future of identity, especially leveraging this blockchain technology. And there's a lot of rich information both of you just provided. I want to start actually first with the role of intermediaries, how you think that's going to play going forward. Because I think, especially as we were discussing, you know, how to have PHP identity, how to have self-sovereignty, there's a lot of components in which it says that we don't, because we don't necessarily trust the intermediaries or third party to handle. But having said that, given the complexity, given, you know, you have to know how to do privacy preserving and such, and there's so much information about yourself that you might need to require to manage in the future. How do you see the sort of role of intermediaries to evolve in that future of, you know, Web3 identity going forward? So maybe I can start with you, Alex. I may be biased here, but um, look, my view on intermediaries in the context of Web3 is it's a bad thing, generally. Like, these are things to be avoided. I think intermediaries in processing, you know, whatever transaction or whatever computation is something that we can already do in the web today. Like, we don't need blockchains for that. Like, my bank, right? Like, you know, actually, my bank works pretty decently. Visa works pretty well for a lot of payments use cases, right? Like, there's they're an inter intermediary that processes payments when I go to buy a coffee, right? That system works fine for most things, you know, for, for many things, right? But I think if we want to think about what things does that not work well for and solve that, then I think we get end up in a world where like, hey, giving the individual owner or user more power to be able to do these things without an intermediary is what makes blockchain special. It's what makes them unique. To the extent that they are tools, that is what they're good for, right? So in my view, there should be as little between the user and whatever resource they're authenticating to or between a user and another user who want to transact financially as possible, at least in the context of Web3 and blockchain. Now, when we're talking about identity, like I think the, the big elephant in the room here is like there's always going to have to be a root of trust, right? Like a passport is a good example. Like, the, like to the extent that I want to, you know, prove my citizenship of a country, then I'm going to need the government of that country to basically vouch for me, right? And that's the root of trust, right? In this system, right? Is, is you know, they need to, in, in the case of the US, right? They issue me a physical passport. And so I, I think it, in you could kind of look at that as an intermediary, but I, I actually don't think it's really an intermediary in this case. It's really just the root of trust. And by the way, there could be different roots of trust for different applications, for different, you know, different criteria, et cetera, right? But I think the ideal in Web3 is you have a root of trust a credential that you control, that you can only selectively reveal facts about without revealing the whole thing. And then there's a verifier who basically don't, learns nothing other than they ask questions and you answer yes or no answers. And they're cryptographically sure that whatever you said is correct, right? So in that sense, I don't believe there should be any intermediaries when we're talking about Web3 and identity. And Heather, I think you know, you have dealt actually quite a bit already with governments and different nations in terms of how to really leverage Web3 identity in different solutions. So, you know, in your view, you know, the role of regulator, the role of government can really play and how can they really encourage this thing to be adopted? What are some of the things you would like to see in kind of major, more developed countries if we're really embracing that next phase of using Web3 identity? I think the governments and Western cultures and in the United States, North America, Europe, is to understand this technology is being used by enterprises and organizations, and they are making trusted decisions 
and they don't need the government's role in it. And so that is an important part that the government doesn't have to be the root of trust in order to make business decisions because business decisions don't necessarily need data from the government. (laughs) And where I see the third parties coming in is sometimes you have a third party relationship as a business You've contracted that third-party relationship because you trust the decision that that third party makes. So in that sense, third parties can bootstrap these ecosystems in building them where you trust that third party to visually inspect paper documents, to verify paper documents or plastic cards or however we're getting our information and identity and they are verifying that. And you, you trust that process that that third party goes through. You're probably already using them today. And instead of using a federated system or direct integrations to share their check mark or their decision with you, they issue a verifiable credential and boom, you've just bootstrapped your ecosystem. And you haven't needed the government necessarily to be that root of trust. So then that's the question back to the government is this technology is moving forward. It is powering industries and companies making critical decisions. Do you as a government want to be a part of these ecosystems? Or would you, would you rather sit on the sidelines and watch and observe? And that's the point that we're at. We're not talking about future wear. We're talking about today wear. And the governments can be involved in that to the degree that they want and feel comfortable with. Awesome. So um, as the wrap-up question that I want to have for both of you, again, looking into the future, and I think Heather and Alex, you guys are interesting because you're on sort of the the two different spots on the spectrum as we're looking at the Web3 identity. So Heather, you've worked a lot on the permission space and, you know, working with a lot of these sort of government initiatives and together with the Hyperledger Foundation. That's kind of a a approach that's, I think, gaining a lot of uh, traction, especially with the institution side. Now, Alex, you're building on the sort of the alternative L1, and it's not just EVM compatible, right? You're trying to build a whole new L1 just to serve this sort of identity and to really tackle that challenge. Now, kind of coming from your perspective, as you're looking really into the future, kind of above and beyond your own organization, how would you see the space sort of sort of evolving in the future as these sort of Web3 identities are being developed on all these different blockchains because when we're saying web3 it's not just one single blockchain technology it's really a selection of choices that are having so how do you see these identity credentials to be merging to be composable and such going to the future so heather i'm going to start with you it really focuses on interoperability because this is an evolution it's not a revolution for enterprises organizations and governments We are focused on adoption and delivering benefits to those who are using it. And you can't expect an organization to go from zero to 100 overnight. You can't expect them to go from their existing to completely permissionless. So where we focus is step-by-step, starting simple, and scaling as you succeed. And that moves you towards permissionless. We do that with permissioned, public permission chains, We do that by focusing on interoperability because we don't know what the chain that's five years, 10 years from now, that's going to be the most popular adopted. So you have to focus on that interoperability 
So it will evolve as this technology evolves. And it's not about sunk resources that they don't get to claim benefit from. So when I talk about this space, we always want to go from here to there. But we really have to understand organizations, enterprises, and people. If we want decentralized identity to succeed, we have to walk them through an evolutionary step-by-step approach, knowing what the vision is and that we can achieve it, but you have to take it one step at a time in order to win and prove it out and have enterprises and governments feel comfortable with the success and measure the benefit and value that they're delivering. Sounds good. And Alex? Yeah, I think, look, we're taking a much more radical approach. Alio is permissionless in the sense that if a government or an enterprise wants to adopt it tomorrow, I actually can't stop them <laughs> even if I wanted to, you know, and they want to issue credentials and do a verification scheme like ZK Creds or ZPass, which we just announced. You know, it's it's just a system that works. It's just like the internet, you know, it's like, hey, I can, you know, send messages via HTTP and, you know, HTTP is just a protocol, right? And then the network of computers in the, in the world, which make up the World Wide Web, are all communicating via this protocol. And it's not like a government that allows you to join that or not, right? Um and so, look, I think what that means is you have this – the permissionless quality of these networks is what makes them different than what came before, in my opinion. Um, now, of course, that has to happen in the context of a real world where identity and, and and certainly the resources that we want to access via authenticating with our identity, these are by definition permissioned, right? Like you need to ask for permission for them, right? So I definitely think – you know, the per, I, I don't think there's a world that I'm advocating for which is just like anarchy, Right. But I do think the power of a permissionless protocol is that it allows you to connect and interoperate between a far wider range of things in a much more frictionless way than having a traditional permission network, my personal view. And then on the Ethereum side, like, yes, there's many other blockchain networks, but, and this is kind of an easy one, like, look, I just say it straight up, identity is not going to take off on any other public blockchain network where there's not some kind of privacy component, right? Like, I'm not going to publish my passport information on an Ethereum block for the world to just view for all of eternity. <laughs> like, it's just simply not. I mean, it's honestly, it's shocking. There's even the economic activity on blockchains today that there is, right? And I think a lot of it is speculative. But like, the reality is, you should, if you want to see a, have a fun activity, go to a conference and ask how many people take their paycheck in a stablecoin, right? Or on any blockchain. And the answer is 99.9% of the time, they don't, right? And there's an obvious reason for that. So look, I think that the, the privacy-preserving nature of what we're building at ALO to me is really critical. That's it's something that's going to enable us to help capture this use case over and above other public permissionless chains. Sounds good. I think a lot has evolved and you know the core premises has been upgraded over time in terms of what's the must-haves as user base. So Mo, I'm going to pass it back to you. And if you have the last words on what do you think are the most important criteria to go forward? Yeah, I, I think I agree that there is a happy medium between being a permissionless infrastructure and being able to protect data. It was not by chance that governments worked on legislation such as GDPR and equivalents all around the world because data has been for the longest time now uh, the so-called digital oil and and it's very rich and we have opportunity now with zero knowledge technologies to claim that back in ways that we haven't had before. So I think there is a, a kind of a, a sort of sweet spot we're, we're going we're gonna to reach with, with that. And, and, and that will apply both to very degenerate Web3 natives and to governments and, and regular people, because 
as we've said this in this show before, there's no way that eight billion people will become the gen <laughs> with with the flick of a switch. So so there's there's still be there's going to be a, a big evolution evolutionary transition between where we are and where we want to be um, to claim that back. So it's very interesting. I love this topic. I could speak about this forever, but we need to wrap up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining us. Where can people find more about you and your companies, uh, Heather? Indicio.tech, I-N-D-I-C-I-O dot T-E-C-H. Sign up for our newsletter. You get updates on the space every week. Thank you. How about you, Alex? Uh, yeah, alio.org, A-L-E-O.org. And we actually, our identity product built on Alio is uh, ZPass. And you can find that at zpass.alio.org. And you, Catherine? On X, on LinkedIn, and of course on Visa.com crypto page. Yeah, you can find me on Zurex Mauricio on X, Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn, and find us at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you can't wait until the next new episode, take a look at the many previous episodes. We have 200 of them and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG. LFG.